Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. My name is Kimberly Cook, and I'm the Senior Administrator here at the Hendricks Center. And today, we're going to be talking about women in early Christianity. And we, this is a special episode. We are uh, joined by particularly um, ec- an expert guest. Uh, we are joined by Dr. Kohik via Skype. Um, she is the professor of New Testament as well as the provost and dean at Denver Seminary and one of the foremost experts in this area of early women in Christ- or women in early Christianity. So we are very thrilled to have you, Dr. Kohik. And well, we're also me. <laughs> and we're also joined by uh, our regular here, <laughs> Dr. Spiegel, uh, who is the professor and chair of theology here at DTS. So thank you for joining Thanks us. Thanks for having me. So like I said, today we're going to be talking about women in early Christianity, and uh, this is one of my favorite topics. It's something that I researched all through my THM, and so I'm just thrilled to be able to discuss it here. Um, but I would like to know, just for everybody listening, and uh, just so that we can all kind of get on the same page, how did you all end up interested in the early church specifically, and dedicate your lives to really researching it and thinking through it. Um, Dr. Siegel, let's start with you. Yeah, I started reading um, what's called the Church Fathers, a literature from the patristic period, which is roughly right after the New Testament period to about 500, 600 uh, AD. Um, Back in Bible college, uh, I would stay up late and uh, just read them in my leisure time and uh, eventually it sparked an interest when I came to seminary. I kept that up and uh, really decided to d- devote myself to that during my PhD studies when you have to come up with a topic to satisfy readers at a committee um, focused on uh, second century primarily, um, Ignatius of Antioch in that period, which is very, very formative. Uh, coming out of the New Testament and moving into church history, very pivotal p- pivotal moments there, um, and uh, I've just been stoking that fire ever since. Very cool. And Dr. Kohik, how about you? When I I uh, came to Christ in high school, and I also really loved history, so I uh, combined my love of scripture and history and went on. Uh, to get my PhD directly out of undergrad. And while I was uh, doing my classwork, I came across Julian of Norwich, who is not a patristic figure. She's medieval, uh, medieval figure, um, but she has this vision and then she ponders it for decades afterwards. And the part of the vision is seeing Christ uh, in a way as a mother, And so there's a lot of wonderful metaphors. She has uh, numerous metaphors, but that one especially stuck because I happened to be pregnant with our firstborn at the time. Mm. And so it was just interesting to to think with a a woman from Christian history uh, about the metaphor of motherhood. Um, And so I, um, I, I started looking into just what were Christian women doing down through the the centuries and i i haven't stopped the journey yet yeah so so we are saying um in early christianity and you uh, dr siegel you outlined 
a little bit of what the patristic mm-hmm. era is. Well, we, for this podcast, we're probably mainly going to be focusing on the patristic era. So um, you said, you know, that it starts at the end of the New Testament era and goes until about 500. Yeah, five, 600. Sometimes people will will date a little for, you know, periodization is a yeah, bit arbitrary yeah. sometimes, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, some of our early non-New Testament patristic literature actually starts already in the late first century, but so we're talking about that period after what we would say the canonical New Testament and to about uh, five or six hundred just depends on, on who you are. And, and to orient people, this is these are essentially the disciples of the disciples, right? Yeah, is and that then a good way and to then think through? And, and, then, and then those followers, who came afterward. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but those are kind sure. of the first. Correct. Okay. Yeah. And and what are, Dr. Kohik, what are some elements, some key themes and some key, key cultural context um, points that we need to be aware of in this particular era? Well, I think especially for the study of women, um, to think about the age of the martyrs, that would be up before Constantine, mm-hmm. which is around the 300, 325 <laughs> mark. Um, prior to that, we can think about the church. It is the early patristic period, uh, but it's also the age of the martyrs. And you're not going to have a lot of um, writings like you do later with Augustine and Chrysostom and Jerome. Uh, you have instead uh, apologists and and then those who are giving their lives uh, for the faith. Um, and then after Constantine, you have uh, the great writers and and you have the Roman elite who both men and women who are supporting the church and thinking a lot about celibacy, virginity, mm-hmm. uh, virginity and martyrdom are linked conceptually. Um, and and also then just the problem or the issue of wealth. And I point out those things as because I think that those topics also matter a lot today as we mm-hmm. think about our bodies um, and what it means to be an embodied Christian. And then in the West, of course, with our amazing wealth compared to any any other time in human history, uh, I think the patristic period and the writings of uh, the men and, and women can help us think theologically about our own time. Mm-hmm. And was there anything that particularly shifted for women from, you know, we hear a lot about the backgrounds in in Scripture, you know, and anybody who's really serious about Bible study and that kind of thing has heard a lot about even potentially women in the New Testament era. Is there anything that shifted from the New Testament era to the patristic, or is it is it similar as far as how women were treated, what the expectations of them were in society? Dr. Kohik? What? Yeah, well, I think one of the big shifts is in the first century, uh, the early church is a Jewish sect, and the Gentiles are somewhat of a minority. But by the time you reach the end of the first century, um, you have uh, Jews and Gentiles you know, maybe even an even mix. I don't know. By the time you get into the second century, it's uh, more, I think, of a Gentile movement. And so um, their experience as sort of first-generation believers uh, are are going to shape the the questions that they ask. I think also they're they're coming from a pagan background um, that while the church has always grounded itself in the Old Testament and the themes of the Old Testament, Mm -hmm. the Gentile... um, 
believers are just asking slightly different questions. So I think that would be one of the significant uh, one of the significant changes. Yeah. Dr. Spiegel, would you have anything to add? Yeah, and I, th- I think um, from the New Testament to the, say, early 2nd century and and moving forward, that change is, is definitely noticeable. Uh, um, but also you should expect incremental changes with regard to doctrine and practice. Um, when you compare, say, 1st century to 6th century, a lot of things look very mm-hmm. different. Uh, but from generation to generation, we see gradual progression as far as uh, relationships uh, uh, between men and women and women in the church and in ministry and leadership, etc. Um, uh, as culture changes, as the church moves from uh, primarily a synagogue-centered um, movement to outside the synagogue, and uh, you are going to see some differences because cultural expectations are going to be different for men and women. Um, there isn't, uh, the, you know, this myth that everything in the Roman Empire was the same. Literally, when you went from city to city or region to region, cultural practices could change and expectations um, class, if you were wealthy versus mm-hmm. uh, working class or poor, um, those expectations would change. So we just have to be careful that uh, we don't come to these stories or these um, these texts with um, uh, artificial expectations mm-hmm. uh, and let them kind of speak to us and hopefully not read into it also our own 21st century um, understandings, it, yeah, yeah. And, and and I mean, we can understand that because things here in Texas, the cultural expectations exactly. are here in Texas are very different than in Seattle, you know, or, or, Minis- or something or like Minnesota, that. where I'm yes. from, right? Yeah. <laughs> or Kansas, <laughs> where I'm from. Um, okay, so we're clearly in a wave of societal discussion currently in our own society um, about women, their their roles, their rights. And that can be a really sensitive conversation mm-hmm. for the church. And um, and I think, you know, we, we look a lot at what our interpretation is of what the Bible has to say about those kinds of things. But it strikes me that maybe history, and the, especially the early church history, can help us think through these things as well. Um, would you all, one, would you even agree with me? And two, if so, what? why should we pay attention to what has happened in the past and uh, really consider it as we're considering how to move forward in our own time? Dr. Siegel, if you want to take yeah, that first. So, so the New Testament itself, part of our approach generally as, as uh, conservative Protestant Christians is that we are interpreting the New Testament in its, in its historical context. And as the church um, is moving out of Judea and into other parts of the empire, those contexts are changing. And we are seeing really in the unfolding of the early church uh, a number of ways that the, the message and the, the method of doing uh, ministry and doing church and worship is is necessarily going to be recontextualized. So one great thing we see is a variety of examples of um, how Christianity uh, not just survives but thrives and flourishes in a variety of contexts. And uh, Lynn mentioned, you know, the change between third uh, to fourth century and Christianity become uh, legal and then the official state religion, that changes the context for us. And so we are now kind of in a, in a cultural context today where Christianity is moving in the other direction. It's not so much uh, an accepted religion or uh, assumed religion, it's we're really moving into what people say a post-Christian 
uh, context where people don't take us seriously or don't, you know, it's looking a lot more like uh, perhaps a church of the the second century. Um, so we can learn some things of how they contextualize things in those uh, those realms as, and and learn some lessons. Maybe be provoked about some of our assumptions. I think um, that's a uh, there are lessons to be learned there and wisdom to be gained. Dr. Kohick, what does this era specifically offer the the women conversation? Mm-hmm. Well, I think it it challenges us in our perhaps naive assumption that women stayed at home, that um, they weren't in the public view, uh, that women didn't have agency. Um, and uh, I appreciated Mike's earlier comment about um, the way that people can have influence. Uh, and uh, in the in the ancient world, you certainly saw that in relation to class and wealth. And so while today we might categorize or, or see as a, as a primary categorization gender, mm-hmm. in the ancient world, a lot of times it was class that mattered. So mm-hmm. you would have women slave owners and they would own male slaves. And the, the, there wasn't, that, that was a, the gender didn't matter at that mm-hmm. point, right? Um, in the ancient world, uh, the imperial family was very important. And Augustus, uh, Caesar Augustus, his wife, Livia, uh, had tremendous power. And we also, uh, the mother of Nero, Agrippina, she also had a lot of power. And her press, her ancient press, is a bit mixed on uh, how <laughs> she used that. Um, but that same kind of power uh, and influence extended through to the post-Constantine era. And you have a woman named uh, Pulcaria, who uh, we talk about in a book that I co-authored with Amy Hughes, Christian Women in the Patristic World. And this woman, Pulcaria, she was the sister of Theodosius II. Uh, She was a committed virgin. um, And when she was 10, her father died, so the emperor died, and her brother, who was eight, in a sense, takes mm-hmm. the throne, although he doesn't begin to rule right away. But when Pulcaria turns 15, she began to oversee her brother's education. And from the ancient historians themselves, they say that she effectively ruled the empire. Um, she was very involved in the Christological debates of the day. Um, the Council of Chalcedon in uh, 451, where we uh, the church confirmed the view Mm -hmm. of Jesus as being fully human and fully divine. She was very influential in that. She had written to Pope Leo I to call this this council. I mean, it it Mm -hmm. once you realize just how involved women were from uh from the imperial family, and then you think of, and this would be uh way earlier, uh late first century, early second century, the figure of Thecla. Uh, we can. I'm, I'm sure we'll get to be talking about her in a little bit. Uh, she she was almost like a meme for several uh, <laughs> centuries as the first um, female martyr, uh, a follower, a disciple of Paul, um, uh, advocated the uh, celibate or virginal life, um, and so th- there's just so much influence, so rich, such a rich history of women participating in the church at all different levels. And and I think once we kind of re, uh, realize that, as we delve into that, we find um, uh, parallels 
and and they can help us. They can help us think through the uh, what feel like perhaps just only contemporary issues. But you know what? Um, there's nothing new under the sun, mm-hmm. and they they had a lot of our same issues. And yeah. it's important to see that these are not isolated um, individuals that happen to. They're the ones sometimes that we have uh, records of or reliable accounts of. Um, but as you read through New Testament and into patristic periods, you're seeing names of women mentioned just in passing, men and women, that we really know nothing about, but they were significant enough in these people's lives to just make mention of them. And so sometimes the picture of, well, women just stayed at home and the men went out ministering um, is really a, a, a completely inaccurate picture of what was going on in the early church. So some of the voices from women in the early church, what – and I'm specifically thinking in, the, in a cultural context, in their cultural context, do, they, do their perspectives offer us anything that maybe we haven't heard before like that, or maybe that we haven't heard? And it's hard I'm, – I'm having a hard time asking the question because I know that mo- many of the women that we do know about, we hear of through the men right. who wrote. Um, very rarely do we have something that they actually wrote themselves. So, um, especially during this era, I think. Uh, but I, I, I'm just curious if, you know, we talk about diversity and, and um, everybody's voice is offering a different perspective. I'm just curious if, if there is a perspective, especially Dr. Kohick, that you've seen from, from your research in this area that they offer us that maybe we haven't heard before. I think they're incredibly courageous. Mm-hmm. I think that would be, I'm talking about pre-Constantine, mm-hmm. the era mm-hmm. of the martyrs, uh, specifically right now. Um, yeah, I think there there's a courage there that, uh, that our ancient sources talk about uh, people being astonished at the, at the courage of these women. So I'm thinking of, for example, Perpetua. Right, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, and uh, to your point about very little... Um, writings remain from women themselves, but Perpetua, uh, her diary is preserved. It's complicated uh, textual history with that, but I personally think that we have at least um, Mm. a redacted form of her Mm. diary. And so we have her voice as she experiences uh, visions before she and another and, and a group of uh, Christians from North Africa face their death in the arena as they're killed by wild beasts. And it's a, a horrible end at one level. And yet at another level, the Christians themselves believe that this is their, in a sense, second birthday, and they are entered into the presence of Christ at their death. She uh, she gives a very powerful testimony. And one of the, one of the um, threads in her text is her defiance of her pagan father, which is an extremely impious mm-hmm. uh, deed to um, to defy him. So she has these, this pagan culture and the virtue of, of obeying your parents, uh, mm-hmm. and and she flies in the face of that uh, because she says to him, "I am a Christian," and that that just rings through her text. And, and it captured the imagination of Christians down through the centuries. So Augustine has a couple of sermons on her feast day where he talks about her. And it's clear that her testimony 
so she she was killed in 203 and augustine is writing i don't know how many a couple centuries later right and she is or what would the, i'm i'm not good in math so i don't know <laughs> <laughs> within two centuries right and mm-hmm. she uh she she's a member of the church if you will mm-hmm. they they still think about her as uh as a figure they can uh emulate even mm-hmm. though the age of the martyrs is done mm-hmm. and they still uh honor her and her testimony i am a christian you can't get more basic than that. Mm-hmm. So just to throw up a, um, some guardrails <laughs> before we close out our conversation sure. on on kind of talking about how we how we think through the application of early Christian history to um, our current day, what what does it look like when we take that too far? When you know is is it possible to take it too far to over elevate you know the way things were done? I'm I'm assuming the answer is yes, you know, but mm-hmm. I, what, what does that specifically look like? Dr. Spiegel, would you like to speak to that? Yeah, I think being making sure that we are aware of, sensitive to the, the, the unique, every historical instance is unique. And this idea of um, we have to be careful as we draw, say, uh, mandates or principles from that. Uh, it is an approach to history. It's a very classic approach to history, but overgeneralizing uh, and coming up with principles that we apply um, can be, um, first of all, it's a little cheesy, but secondly, it can be irresponsible. So we do have to kind of understand fully the context and what's going on there and acknowledge that that context never is exactly repeated. Um, But another approach is the um, gaining wisdom and inspiration, etc., from from a lot of these stories, men and women, who uh, throughout history have given their lives. It's, I think, a more responsible way. Paul even says, you know, in the Old Testament, these things were done and written for our benefit, and uh, even acknowledging the the different context. Uh, It is idealistic and impossible to go back Mm -hmm. and completely recreate the context and the structures and and those kinds of things of the early church, uh, so it has to be a dialogue. You know, you're reading, and and sta- reading them critically, and and in, in some sense, kind of sorting through the uh, the wheat and the chaff, but at the same time, uh, letting them read us in a sense and uh, inform us and teach us. And so it's always this this dialogue that we're having with the past, rather than importing it or adapting it or adopting it. But just to be clear, we're not saying that we just should because just they did try it, to make our right. church look just like the just because they did it, we we should be doing church. it. It's yes. more complicated mm-hmm. than that. Yeah, I figure if I'm gonna if I uh, was in a time machine and I went back to this time period, I think I would miss my hot shower and my. Yeah. <laughs> if I went back. Yeah. I would definitely want to be really, really rich, right? Yeah. Just only like about five percent of the of right. the population. Yeah, we do not, and and it was imperial, right? It, mm-hmm. That there was a monarch. Well, it was beyond a monarchy, right? Mm-hmm. It was an emperor, and yeah, I I uh, I'm I'm pretty much in favor of democracy. <laughs> so, yeah, there'd be certain things that, that shape the reality of these of, mm-hmm. of that time, uh, and the church accommodated and and uh, assimilated and reacted against, just like the church today accommodates, assimilates, and then also uh, is countercultural. So, mm-hmm. And, and so we really, the goal, I think, is to look at them 
as brothers and sisters in the Lord who mm-hmm. are in different situations, but whose writings, again, in dialogue might be able to inform us of how they encountered their own situations and how we might, you And know, provoke us yes, to, to yeah. further thought and reflection and questioning our own unquestioned mm-hmm. assumptions, yeah. Well, and, and quite frankly, to serve as a tradition for us to preserve. Yeah, um, preserve and draw You know, upon. the democracy of the dead, that mm-hmm. kind of thing. Um, so, and Kimberly, if yes. I could add to your question, mm-hmm. I think uh, I might say no, I don't think you can overemphasize if mm-hmm. you're doing good history. Okay. But I think right. it can feel like someone is overemphasizing if they're only used to doing history as looking at what the uh, church fathers actually wrote or looking at the creeds, because in those cases, you're not really going to find women's Mm -hmm. voices. But if you go outside of that and look at uh, practices and letters and uh, those kinds of things, then you'll realize that that women were with men doing, uh, forming the piety and the the doctrines uh, of the church. So it may feel like you're overemphasizing women, but really all it is is that you just haven't talked about them a lot. Now you are. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Right. God is a genius storyteller, and the evidence of this is threaded throughout Scripture. In Christianity Today's new show, Holy Curiosity, with me, Kat Armstrong, we explore storied connections threaded throughout Scripture from the Old Testament to the New. Our first miniseries, Connecting Dinah and the Woman at the Well, welcomes experts like Drs. Tim Mackey and Diane Landberg to give us insight and context into the physical location and meaning of these two stories. These stories will spark holy curiosity in your own faith, because once you see these connections, you can't unsee them. God wastes no person, place, or thing. Listen and subscribe to Holy Curiosity with Kat Armstrong on your favorite podcast platform. So in that mindset, what are, you've mentioned um, the stories of Placaria and Perpetua already. Who are some other women of note that people listening may not have ever heard of that they should? Who would you, who are a couple women that you would bring up, Dr. Kohik? Well, I did briefly mention also Thecla. Thecla, yeah. I would say Thecla um, is a fascinating character. She, um, and I say character because the story that we have of her in the Acts of Paul and Thecla, uh, there's some pretty amazing miracles, if you will, that happen as she is preserved from death, being burned at the stake or facing wild beasts or jumping into a pool that has killer seals in it. Uh, it, It's a lot of fun, actually, to read. And it's hard to know how the ancients would have understood the what seems to me at times to be a bit fanciful, right? Mm -hmm. Um, Nevertheless, I do think that there is an historical figure if you will, behind that, those stories. And she is a, a disciple of Paul who, in the story, hears Paul's preaching and turns from her wealth and her privilege in the city to follow him. Uh, she uh, eschews marriage uh, and dumps her fiancé and defies her mother who insists that she should get married. And she just maintains her steadfast confidence that um, she needs to follow Lord in this way, rather than 
um, in, you know, becoming a leading woman of, of the city. And she, she remains a figure of great importance throughout, even, even in the post-Constantine church. So Macrina, who is the sister of Gregory the Great and Basil of Caesarea, mm-hmm. she uh, talks about, or Gregory indicates that uh, Macrina's sort of secret name, if you will, is Thecla. Mm-hmm. And so this this woman and her piety against all odds and her faithfulness, her perseverance against all odds, uh, was seen as a as a role model. And so that that would be a figure that um, I would say is is a is useful to study or to think mm-hmm. about, mm-hmm. yeah. And and also the reaction to her, I find that uh, also very fascinating. Hmm. Dr. Spiegel, who would you add? Yeah, I was going to mention Macrina and her her role with the uh, with the brothers Gregory, uh, Nissa, and Basil. Um, uh, I would even mention to, if we're going to move a little bit forward to um, Constantine's mother Helena and yes. uh, her role in, uh, you know, that Constantine himself is a very controversial figure among historians and uh, a lot of the the politics around his conversion and his his deeds but when you take a look at helena and uh um you see a, a genuine piety in a woman using her uh vast power and wealth um in a way that is uh to, to this day you when you do tours in the Holy Land, etc. You are you can thank Helena and uh, her patriot, uh, patronage for um, the preservation of sites and mm. the uh, concept of pilgrimage uh, and some of these things. Um, the the blessing to the church after the times of persecution were, were in large part because of her wielding her her influence um, really well. And so I think that that is a it's a it's a lesson again without being hokey, but it's a lesson for, um, uh, as, as Dr. Coates said today, um, we are living in a time when we have a, 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 an immense amount of influence and leisure time, frankly. Mm-hmm. Um, and women, especially in the West, uh, have so many opportunities and can look to figures like this as how, how, how yes, we can sacrifice everything, as, as did a, a Thecla, for instance, but we can also then... Um, utilize these things that we are given um, for the benefit of the church. So I think that there are, um, um, there's not a one-size-fits-all kind of approach to this, which I think is what you see with these accounts of women throughout, throughout the history of the church. So we know, we've heard some of the, the big bait, excuse me, I'm so sorry, um, we've heard some of the big names, uh, but I think there were also groups of women, you know, or, you know, within the society, there were there were groups that um, different women would fall into. Mm-hmm. And can you talk to that a little bit, Dr. Kohik? What are some of the groups of women that we see during this era? Uh, the widows and the virgins would be two that uh, really span this whole period that mm-hmm. we're talking about. Um, we have references to women who chose not to marry or chose not to remarry uh, and live a virginal or a celibate life, and they were honored in the in the church as um, wanting to. Uh, the it feels it may feel like a foreign concept today since we assume that if someone is sexually inactive, they're not really a fulfilled human. 
Um, but in the ancient world, that wasn't the, the vision, certainly not within the church, but also within mm-hmm. um, certain areas of the, of the pagan world, um, and, and even, you know, like a John the Baptist. So there's, there's also a Jewish analog mm-hmm. to the celibate life as well, the, the prophetic life. Um, but the, what I wanted to drive home with this uh, emphasis of, on uh, widows, so they wouldn't remarry uh, virgins um, who never remarried, or who never married, um, that the, it wasn't that they hated their, their bodies or that they somehow were prudish and against sex. And I'm not even sure that they felt marriage at the time was so patriarchal that they couldn't, you know, they, they wouldn't have any self-actualization mm-hmm. because Roman women, or in the Roman period, uh, women could have their own wealth apart from their husbands. So, uh, you know, I'm not saying that everyone had married bliss at this time, but I'm not sure that all women chose the virginal life just to get out of mm-hmm. getting married. Instead, they chose it. They had agency. They chose it because they believed it offered a foretaste of the resurrection life. Mm-hmm. And the resurrection life in that immortality, that imperishability, uh, that age where um, we are, uh, you know, the great supper of the Lamb, the kingdom of God having come, all of those wonderful things that uh, all Christians look forward to, the resurrection of the body. These women and men uh, just wanted to to have a taste of that or a, a richer experience of that life, and they felt they could achieve that through the virginal life. And that was greatly admired by uh, most of the church. Um, yeah, so I think that that's one um, one thing that we can, as we think about our own day and the message that we have about what a fulfilled life means, I think we can look back to these women and see how they understood what a fulfilled Christian life could look like, and, and that could be instructive for us. Mm-hmm. And you also mentioned the martyrs, so yeah. correct, you know, um, as a as a again a group quote unquote <laughs> that women right. might fall into um and that we look back and we see women you know participating in even though in that one they obviously were not wanting to um the another one that comes up in conversation often and is a little bit more debated is whether or not in the new testament church specifically uh there were apostles women who were mm-hmm. apostles and that has a lot of loaded implications, you know, it, depending on what your answer to that would be. What are some of the perspectives on that, Dr. Spiegel? Yeah, um, it, like you said, it's it's debated. There's not a lot of good, solid evidence of, of actual, what we might call capital A apostles, as described in the New Testament, the, the church built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, etc. cetera. Uh, the one passage um, that mentions Junia, uh, Andronicus and Junia, um, Early on, there was an assumption that this is a reference to two apostles because it says they are well known among the apostles, um, and they some tried to make Junia poor poor Junia into a man that I think utterly fails. But uh, she she is a woman there. But there is a question of how to translate. She's well known. They are well known among the apostles. Does that mean we? Uh, kind of like uh, Dr. Kohik is well known among the faculty of Dallas Seminary, or is it? You know they're well known because they are among the apostles themselves. It's it's not completely clear, and that's about the clearest passage we have. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, 
prophetesses are all over the place uh-huh. in the New Testament. And so, and in and the other, other hand, um, the fact that Paul is talking about Andronicus and Junia and Phoebe and all of these women who are clearly traveling and back and forth and heavily involved and commended, we kind of start losing the forest for the trees um, and see that uh, women are heavily involved during the apostolic period and part of what we might more generally call you know, the apostolic ministry. So whether they are holding the office, if there is that, that kind of language of, of apostle is um, not completely clear, but I think misses probably the point. Hmm. That's, Dr. My, that's my perspective. Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Kohick, what would you add to the conversation? Yeah, not a lot. I think um, Mike is spot on in, in that. I think that it, what his comments also reveal is that the term apostle itself had a range of meanings. Mm-hmm. And it did mean someone who traveled and, and, and was sent and a messenger uh, kind of thing. And then it also could be, you know, one of the 12. Right. right. And so... Uh, so I think within the New Testament you find that range of um, of usage as well, and and I think therefore if we're often I I think what happens is we come with a question: uh, what roles should women play in the church? And we have a particular ecclesiolo- ecclesiological structure in mind, and then we go to the New Testament and we see okay, well. Given my ecclesiological structure, what does the Bible say about it? Instead of reading the New Testament with the uh, from from its own context and looking at the language that it uses, uh, presbyters, elders, apostles, co-workers, and from there trying to figure out, you know, what were what were Paul's expectations and Peter's expectations and. Uh, and the rest in terms of how the church can function well um, or not so well as we see it in the Corinthians. It seems to be all over the place. <laughs> and I, I'm always thankful for the Corinthians because I think, okay, there's hope. <laughs> Whenever I might start feeling bad about my own church, I just read 1 Corinthians. Exactly. <laughs> Poor Corinthians. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so we, I've also um, heard the term deaconesses, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in, in a lot of the literature and in conversation about, you know, ecclesiological structure and that kind of thing. When if, if somebody listening to this were to hear or read about the deaconesses, who, how should they understand them? Dr. Kohick, let's start with you. Yeah, well, I think the um, some of it is a, just a, a simply a language issue uh, in Greek. Do I, uh, how, how am I translating that, uh, that term? Um, anytime, so anyway, you know, is it the wife of, of a deacon mm-hmm. or is it its own order itself, female deacons? Um, and anytime you have, just as an aside, in the way that the Greek language conveys um, conveys things. If you have a group of individuals and there are all women except one man, that group, the, the, what the Greeks would do is they would use that, that noun, that plural noun would be in the masculine mm-hmm. because it needed to account for that one man that was there. Um, and sometimes I think when we read these masculine nouns, uh, plural masculine nouns, that we think, well, women weren't there. 
And that, that would be an overread of mm -hmm. what is just how the Greeks chose to describe things. It, it overreads it to exclude women uh, in, in that. So, yeah, but I think the, the deaconesses, it depends on how you're going to use that, that understanding. And I, as you were talking, I was thinking of uh, Pliny the Younger mm -hmm. has a, a missive that he sends to the emperor. He's checking out Christianity, and he's, uh, he's got these two Christians that he has tortured to try and get more information. That's what you did back then. And they're two slaves uh, who are Christians, and he's torturing them. And he identifies them as ministers which is like the Latin way of saying deacon, and, and they're women. Mm -hmm. uh, he saw them as authorities in, in the church, that they could speak on behalf of this group of Christians, these, um, this group that he thinks shouldn't exist, mm -hmm. right, that is in defiance of the, of the empire. Um, so what do, what do I do with that? I, you know, I, I don't have, they don't have a title, uh, you know, of, of, of a set office within the church, but functionally, the governor of the area thinks they're church leaders. Mm -hmm. So that's the, that I think is where, uh, where we, we just struggle with our evidence, because mm -hmm. it doesn't mm -hmm. actually always line up with how we do church today. And we tend to locate authority within an office. And they did that in the ancient world, too. But what I'm saying is they didn't necessarily always do that. Mm -hmm. And that's what makes it kind of difficult, or why you have a variety of opinions on how to read the evidence. Mm -hmm. yeah. So I have another question as it relates just to just this whole conversation. You know, you all are highlighting all of these different people that are mentioned and all these different, particular women, all these different women who are mentioned and, you know, just random names are even thrown mm -hmm. in to lists and, you know, uh, that the, there are so many women, not everywhere, but doing so much. And my question is, when when were they forgotten? You know, because I'm like, we're, well, it's one of the reasons we're doing this podcast is because a lot of people haven't heard these names. So... When did they kind of fall off the radar? You know, you talked about Augustine um, celebrating Perpetua 200 years later, and and they had a feast day for her, you know, and, and so they were clearly remembering, and the women, some of the women from earlier in their church history, they were recognizing and and um, honoring. So when when did we forget Dr. Siegel, do you want well, to? Well, I think one? I think, and and I'd love to hear uh, Lynn's take on this. But I think uh, for most of, well, all of the medieval period, especially in traditions that do re at least remember saints um, with saint days and feast days and artwork and and stories and things, um, those were vehicles of remembrance and uh, and reverence and learning from these um, men and women. There were male and female saints in that whole. Um, array. So uh, I think that was a vehicle for remembrance. Uh, probably Reformation, post-Reformation is where they kind of withdraw from that and, and open up. The early Reformers definitely remembered the, the Church Fathers and women of the past and apocryphal literature, and oftentimes quite positively as examples of piety, etc. But then it does open up the possibility then for um, 
the church at large to begin to forget and the, the shift toward a, we're just going to read the Bible, just going to mm-hmm. focus on the Bible, not think about of history and our, and our legacy and our, the heritage. Uh, I think that it opens up the possibility to forget. Mm. Dr. Kohick? Yes, and I yeah I, I completely agree with everything that uh, that Mike said, and I I think there's also a, a rhythm in history that we find where, in a new group or a new setting, a new endeavor, um, oftentimes men and women share in the influence as this uh, group begins, um, and so if you look at the history of the Protestant denominations, oftentimes in the early part of their history. Men and women are serving uh, side by side, uh, sometimes even uh, from the pulpit, depending on what, again, what that means in that ecclesiological mm-hmm. tradition. Um, but sometimes when, when, a, when a group becomes more established, it, uh, it tends to, um, as it organizes itself, the leadership tends to become more predominantly male. Um, and so I think that that's just kind of what you see. Um, I was also thinking that um, uh, in the great missionary movements mm-hmm. that, that we have had post-Reformation, mm-hmm. uh, women are uh, very much represented. You know, Amy Carmichael, we know about her legacy. And, and so sometimes it depends on what, what is the church doing, what, what is the task of the church, um, and as to how men and women are, are working side by side, or whether it's more um, hierarchically structured. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. Well, this has been a fascinating conversation, and I just want to thank you both so much for your time and really helping us think through the women who have been in our church Um and have been for millennia and maybe have been forgotten at times, but definitely not fully forgotten because we're still talking about them and their their courage and uh, their influence and, um, you know, their, um, their faithfulness and just saying, I am a Christian, going back to what you were talking about earlier. Um, again, want to thank you so much, Thanks. Dr. Spiegel and Dr. Kohick, for your time, and we want to thank you for listening. And if you would like to have a topic for us to consider uh, for a future episode, please feel free to email us at thetable at dts.edu and be sure to join us next time as we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. For more podcasts like this one, visit dts.edu slash the table. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth. Love well. Love well.